loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Kelly Scolota. Kelly's a wife, mom, daughter, sister, and author, and MBA, the founder and CEO of KS Consulting and Capital, and now a cancer survivor. She's a recognized authority on consumer brand marketing, whose business book, Too Busy to Shop, Marketing to Multi-Minding Women, was named a must-read by Publishers Weekly. As co-chair of the Investment Committee of the Next Act Fund, she invests in female-led startup companies. She's been named one of the most influential women in business by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and serves on several boards of of directors. She's also been quoted in HuffPo, Time.com, Today.com, Fortune.com, Forbes, Adweek, Brandweek, C-SPAN, and other media outlets. Her family's the center of her life, and she loves to golf, cook, travel, and enjoy cat humor with them. It's been a big pastime the last few years. She's grateful every day for the love and support she receives throughout her health challenges and hopes her story can be helpful to to others navigating cancer. And today we'll We'll largely been talking, be talking about her experience and the book that came out of it, A Way Back to Health, 12 Lessons from a Cancer Survivor. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Cheryl. It's really nice to be here. Great to be here with you. And um, of course, I was saying before we went on, on air, um, you know, how much I resonate when I'm doing a show directly related to cancer because of my own experience living next to someone with cancer for nearly a decade. But of course, every, every uh, experience is, is uniquely personal, and um, there are commonalities and differences. So let's start with your story just a bit. Um, can you talk about, you know, I, get, I think one of the things I read in your book is I was the healthiest person I knew. And of course, running, running cancer support groups for decades, I've heard that so many times that um, it's not always you feel sick and you decline and then, you know, sometimes it's just completely out of the blue. Can you talk about how it was for you? I can. And yes, that is, that describes how it was for me. Um, In fact, I went in for my very first routine colonoscopy. And um, as I said in the book, I really feel like I was the healthiest person that I knew. I exercised and ate right and, um, uh, you know, tried to take care of myself, really never felt sick a day in my life. And I went in for that first routine screening. And uh, as I was kind of coming out of the haze of the anesthesia, I was hearing some discussion and voices and I heard words like polyp and oncologist and wasn't really sure what was going on. And then when I fully came out of it, realized that they had removed a large uh, polyp from my colon, which the doctor assumed, given the size, was probably cancerous. And that started me on a 
whirlwind journey um, in the healthcare system and in cancer treatment that I never for a second thought that I would be um, plunged into. Well, and also uh, you give the impression of someone who is, um, I, I don't know, everyone has challenges in their life, but <laughs> you, you give the impression of someone who was able to kind of make what you wanted to happen, happen in your life. Would you, would that be apt? <laughs> you know, you're very perceptive, Cheryl. Um, I was doing, it's funny, I was doing an exercise for a client and I said to my daughter, I need to tell you, tell me what you think I, I do well. And she said, mom, when you put your mind to something, you, you do it. So, so I think right. that's, that's an apt description. I just, I feel like, you know, you kind of, I, I, put a list together or I see things that I want to do and I go after it. And um, this was not on my list. (laughs) That's what I was thinking because, you know, for everyone, for everyone who's blessed enough to have a life like that, where they're able to make things happen the way they want more or less, or when challenges happen, they get, you know, all of that. Then when something comes along that's really out of your control, it throws everything into a different light, doesn't it? It does. And when you're someone uh, like me who likes to be fairly in control of what, you know, you know, of your day and you're thrust into this world that um, you know, even though my mom was an OR nurse her entire life, um, you know, I, I was never prepared for that kind of um, medical um emergency in our, you know, in my own life. And so it really does take you immediately uh, out of the world that you're used to living in every day, whether that's work or making dinner for your family or just, you know, kind of the normal routine things of life. And all of a sudden your attention is completely taken from that to how you'll get through a very significant health challenge. So it's, um, it was a very, uh, it was a very trying time for me. It's a very trying time for, for anyone, but it was, um, it was shocking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Maybe you could read a little excerpt from your book about that diagnosis moment. Um, I will. I'll um, have it pulled up right here, Cheryl. So just a, a few paragraphs here. Uh, do you want me to go ahead and jump in? Absolutely. Okay, this is from um, the very beginning of the book, the introduction. It felt like only a few minutes had passed when I heard my name being called. Still in a fog, I felt a twinge of pain, like a slight menstrual cramp. Always sensitive to the tones of people's voices, my intuition signaled that something wasn't right. Slowly, my mind responded to the call and I began to come to my senses. Still under the influence of the anesthesia, I could hear the doctor saying things like, large polyp, need to send for testing, and I can recommend a surgeon and and an oncologist. What the hell is she talking about? What does that mean? An appointment with an oncologist? A full-on cancer doctor? As we prepared to leave, the doctor indicated that the polyp was unusually large and could be cancerous. It was likely to be colon cancer. The the stories that I get exposed to about the way that people um, are dealt with in moments like that are 
continually shocking. I mean, I hear the other end where pe- where a doctor really does take into account the kind of state someone is in at that moment. But that sounds kind of rapid fire to me. You know, how do you absorb that so quickly when you're groggy from uh, medication? And that must have been an incredibly, uh, must have led to quite a disequilibrium right off the bat. It did. It did. And um, as I think back to that weekend, that was on a Friday, um, my entire weekend was just kind of a crying haze. Um, I wanted to try and keep a positive outlook. I didn't know for sure um, the polyp was undergoing testing. But once you hear the C word, um, it, you, you almost, I, I couldn't come back from that. Um, and I had to wait over the weekend. Um, until I knew for sure, and then didn't get the test results back until Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. So there was quite a delay, um, given the weekend timing, um, in me even getting confirmation. So it was, it was really shocking. And even though I'm someone to try and keep a positive attitude about things, it was pretty difficult to do that. Also, I'm glad you bring up that positive attitude thing, because it kind of depends to me how you define that. I don't think it means not uh, being real. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it means keeping open all possibilities, maybe, or um, knowing you'll do your part or something. But uh, I, I agree, it would be almost impossible to be cheery at a moment like that. That would be so unreal. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it feels like it is impossible um, to be anything close to normal, even though you don't, and I didn't have all of the information at, at that time. So you can't really make an informed decision about what to do or how, you know, how to feel. But once you hear that word, um, as you know, from your experiences, it's just, uh, it, it puts you in a totally different place. For sure. And honestly, what I observe in lots of people is that those moments of of uncertainty, when you're waiting for a test result, when you're not sure what treatment options, you know, the uncertain times uh, tend to be more emotionally, wreak more emotional havoc than even knowing a bad thing and knowing what you need to do next. And I, I could imagine that might be true for you as an action-oriented person. You know, I think that's very insightful um, and very true. I heard that from a lot of the people that I talked to when I was writing my book who shared stories. And I even see it and feel it today with myself and with other people I know who have gone through cancer treatment, who are going now through surveillance and, you know, going through your regular schedule of testing whether that's twice a year or once a year, I'm still on a twice a year schedule. I just did it in the past couple of weeks. And even though I go into those tests with absolutely no reason to think that there's anything wrong and I feel fine and everything has been okay, um, when you go in to have a CT scan or do blood work because you've had cancer in the past, that uncertainty that you spoke of just weighs on your shoulders and so I, I try and pretend like I don't have an appointment coming up um, until the day before, because if I, if I really think about it, it, um, it, 
it really weighs on you. And I've heard other people say the same. In fact, I think there's a term for it, Cheryl. You've probably heard of it, scanxiety. I was about to bring that up myself. Mm -hmm. I was about to bring that up myself. I I had a client who had a, um, they're now saying life-limiting terminal, like she was going to die of her cancer and she was Mm. having scanxiety every time, which was pretty frequent. Mm-hmm. And she, um, this was not a suggestion of mine. She decided that for the several days before each time that happened, she was going to specifically put aside time to contemplate her own death. Wow. Which I thought was a really interesting approach. <laughs> um, interestingly, months into it, she stopped being afraid of it. Wow. And, and But because she, of course confronted her fear by choosing to do that. Mm -hmm. But the other thing it did was it stopped being any fear she had stopped being associated with the scans because of course the day before and the day after whatever's going on is still going on. Right. Right. That's right. (laughs) The scan is not creating anything, but it sure does create an emotional experience. It does. In fact, um, as I had my, my scans just a few weeks ago, And now, of course, you get results quickly. I was waiting for the doctor to come in, and I already had my results pulled up on my my patient portal, and I was kind of going through them. And I I tend to do this anyway. I get my own results. I read them. I go through them before I, you know, even the doctor probably sees them. And um, so I was making some assumptions of myself some there were some flags some things and as it turns out the doctor wasn't concerned about it at all but um you know it's it's part of that process and there really is a a lot of anxiety associated with it that brings up an interesting point because um i have full access to my tests and medical records and all that so i know what Mm -hmm. you're talking about most people do these days Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a double-edged sword isn't it on the one hand Yes, it. We're our own advocates. Yes, it's our information. Um, we have a right to know it. You know all of that. And then on the other hand, even very people very well versed in their own cancer are not always sure how to read the results. That's what you're talking about, right? And a lot of fear happens as a result. So, I I think it's each person's kind of job to figure out their relationship to those records. Sometimes I've had people decide not to look and other people who must look and there's everything in between. Um, For you, I can see that that information would be kind of crucial. I think you're right in that everyone is different and I think everyone has to do what's right for them. What I found helpful for me was always keeping a very close tab on my records and not just having the electronic version, but also keeping hard copies. When I was first diagnosed, I went in for additional screening and they thought I had breast cancer as well because of a a, a screen. And so I had to, uh, and I was toggling between two healthcare systems. And even though electronic medical records are wonderful. They don't always work whenever you're toggling between systems. So I started getting hard copies and keeping up my own personal uh, medical record file of hard copies of everything. And that way, if I was going between health systems, I had, for instance, my mammogram scans for the past 10 years, hard copies right there 
and didn't have to wait for um, things to be mailed or transferred when they weren't electronically available. So um, I think it's up to you and everyone has to do what's right for them in terms of records. I always look and keep tabs and want to know immediately what's going on because for me, um, I have learned how to read them. And so there are some things that could be alarming, but for the most part, I can put my mind at ease that way. Um, And I did. For for some people, information is golden. Yes, it could be very powerful. Right. Um, You know, I think we're also taught, we have to put this in the context of a healthcare system that's very run, that your doctor doesn't have maybe time to get back to you quickly, that may not have time to look at your records before they come into the room, you know, um, and I'm not blaming any particular healthcare worker. I know many so wonderful healthcare workers, but they are up against, you, you do have to kind of get someone to manage yours or manage it yourself to, to not have things fall through the cracks, don't you? You do, which is why I decided to take control of my own records. Um, and you're right, you, I, I have walked into appointments where they haven't had a chance to look at things in advance. So one of the things I always found helpful was, in addition to keeping those records, was preparing for my doctor's appointments like I would prepare for a meeting. I would jot down all of my questions and um, you know write down things where I thought there were gaps so that when I went into that meeting, you're emotional, you um, may forget things. I was able to ask all of my questions and keep a log of everything so that I was, I felt like I was fully prepared and came away from those appointments with as much information as possible. I did one other thing that might be helpful to to people, Cheryl, and that was um, when I went in for chemo, I ended up um, insisting on having the same nurse every time. And because of that, she came to know me and my body and what I needed. And it was a, a real comfort and really relieved a lot of anxiety each time I had to go in for chemo. I think that's an, an excellent thing because uh, a lot of healthcare is actually relational. Mm-hmm. You know, they're experts, but they're people too. Yes. So um, I find people do much better when they have good relationships with the people who are caring for them. And that would cultivate it, wouldn't it, if you had the same nurse every time? Yep. I want to come back, though, and talk more deeply after the break about questions and um, second opinions, uh, that whole okay. aspect of taking control of health, because I have some thoughts. You you talk about it a lot in the book, and I have some uh, questions and thoughts about that. So let's come back to that. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media, the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Kelly Sclota, you can go to www.awaybacktohealth.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com. 
com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kelly Sklodo about her book, A Way Back to Health. And Kelly, before the break, we were talking about the need to be sure and ask questions to write them down so you don't forget when you're kind of leaving your body in the middle of the appointment right. and, you know all of that um and i really liked all the things you mentioned about what, what makes it hard for people to ask questions or ask for a second opinion mm-hmm. um and, but there was one i've encountered a lot in cancer support groups um i don't think you mentioned And I wanted to know if it ever impacted you, which is that many, many people have said to me, if I, if I question the doctor, I won't get as good care because they won't think I trust them and they'll punish me. And I've heard it so often that I know that it's a thing, you know, uh, it's more likely when doctors are less personal, Mm -hmm. um, when when doctors are warm, it's more likely that people feel it's okay to ask questions. So I want to say that. But um, is that something you've heard from people? Is that something you experienced? What do you think of that? It is, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a combination of, and as I researched it, I found that um, people feel a, feel a number of things. One, that a doctor knows more than them. And so they really shouldn't be questioning the doctor. They're the ultimate authority. Uh, or two, they feel questioning them would be disrespectful. Um, and that disrespect might, as you suggested, result in less uh, care or, or not as good of care if they're questioning the doctor. Um, I, I've also talked to doctors about that. And from a doctor uh, perspective, what they say is, 
um, they feel like they would like to be asked more questions. And if uh, someone wants to go and get a second opinion, then they should, you know, feel free to do that. Um, as you said, some doctors kind of voice that or show that, show that compassion and some don't. And so it may make it less likely that someone would do that. What my research on the topic uh, found was that when people do dig in and ask questions or get a second opinion, that does often change their diagnosis or, or improve it. And so there is a real kind of data-driven reason why people should dig in and ask questions and ask for second opinions. There's another factor, which is that um, since I'm since I'm more the emotional experience of cancer person, right, <laughs> not the medical, but they're so interrelated from my view, the people who do well, regardless of what they experience, uh, are the people who feel confirmed in their choices mm -hmm. because they have the information and then they feel out what's right for them. Right. And people who just go along with something, they're not feeling quite right, but they're like, oh, well, the doctor's the expert or whatever. Um, then if anything happens that isn't the greatest, they then turn on themselves. Mm -hmm. And and that's the worst emotionally. You it know? is. It um, is. So I'm, I'm a big advocate for it from that point of view. But of course, uh, what, what people... Um, individually have the experience to do or cap capability or capacity to do is also very different. And I, I also wanted to mention, I've mentioned this on the show before, that uh, my mom died of pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And the first appointment we had was with a very high up in the field person at UCSF that someone, you know, got us in with and all that kind of stuff that happens sometimes. The very first thing after she said hello that she said to my mother was, I'd like to know what kind of a patient are you? Are you the kind of patient who wants to just um, br bring your body in and, and um, I look at the stuff and I say, you should do this and then you do it? Or are you the kind of patient who wants to know everything and then you make your own decision? Interesting. And I thought this should be a uniform question whenever you meet a new doctor, shouldn't it? It should be. That's a great way to approach it. I mean, I mean, it it, it eased everything. And of course, my mom was was um, quite an active participant in her own health care her whole life, uh, and she was able to answer that question. And it and it they put it on the very top of her file. So that every time the doctor came in to see her again, she knew she knew. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's brilliant. And it took literally two seconds. And I'm sure it saved a lot of time in the end, don't you think? So interesting, because there's such a focus on patient centricity right now. And is people think that that's complex, or it requires, you know, systems or technology. But just asking some very simple questions like that off the bat could really <laughs> go a long way. So I think that's very smart. I have not had a doctor who asked that question out of the gate. Um, I felt like I was more the one who was um, kind of pushing for it or and maybe right. I mean, even a lesson there to state what kind of patient you are if you're not asked. Right. It's true. But 
but as you well know, you know, even someone like the the neurosurgeon who wrote When Breath Becomes Air, when he mm. got his own cancer diagnosis, yes. he went completely blank. He did. So the idea that patients are going to be able to bring that uh, right away, it's not realistic. And that's why I'm a big proponent of the head, the medical care system. You know, there's been a lot of studies that if you if you deal with it that way, um, that's a whole bunch of things aside from that question. But that question included, it saves you time because the person's less anxious. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I agree, and I'd never heard it before, and I'd had a whole lot of medical appointments with people before that time. I'd never heard anyone ask that. So I like to mention it as often as possible. I if think there it's are any a gr- fantastic tip. providers out there. It's a great question. And most people, even if someone says, I'm not sure, then they're going to go away and think about it and come back and have a little more idea, right? Right. And think about how easy that would be to systematize. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. So simple. So simple. That's right. That's right. And, um, and informative in a lot of, there's a lot that comes out of that, wouldn't you think? Like for you, the fact that you looked at your tests every time before, well, a doctor would be unsurprised by that if they knew you were the kind of patient that wants all the information. Right. So. It's a win-win. It's a win-win for everybody. Mm-hmm. I love those kind of things. Let's have you read it just a tiny bit, but a bit more. Uh, of course, whenever anyone has a certain diagnosis and and lives and becomes an advocate like you are, you have opinions about, uh, you, you want to encourage people in certain ways. So there's a little part in your book about uh, encouraging people to screen, and I'd love for you to share that. Yeah, it's, it's so important to... Um to get screened, especially now that just as a side note, the um, guidelines have changed from uh, 50 to 45. So, you know, everyone who's around that age should be thinking about, um, should be thinking about that screening. Um, Let me read here from, this is um, actually Cheryl, uh, an excerpt from, it's called Butterflies in My Stomach, which was an article that I published early on that was really the early impetus for the book. I never really paid that much attention to news coming out of the American Cancer Society, but today I did. New guidelines recommend that U.S. adults start colon cancer screening earlier at age 45 instead of 50. I agree wholeheartedly. I'm a fairly private person, not one to broadly share deeply personal experiences but I feel the need to speak out and share. Here's why. I'm the healthiest person I know. The one in a million who exercises every day, eats from the local farmer's market, wakes up every day feeling energized and rarely gets a cold. That's why just a month ago, when I went for my first routine colonoscopy, I assumed it was just a one day pain in the butt, literally. Coming out of the post-procedure fog of the propofol, however, I remember the doctor saying CT scan and when you talk to the surgeon. In an instant, the healthy bubble I lived in popped or more like exploded. 
You know, I'm uh, I'm part of a huge, I live in California. I'm part of the Kaiser system, which is spreading out a little bit beyond California, but it's very um, uh, protocol based, I guess. Uh, there are certain things they, they get everybody doing. Right. And what they do about colon cancer testing is actually an at-home test. And I'm wondering if you know whether there are statistics on effectiveness of that versus, you know, colonoscopy and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, um, I know that it is very up and coming. And in fact, even when I was getting my first screening, uh, I think it was Cologuard was one of the first ones to come out with that at-home screening. And from what I've read, it seems that if there is no history of colon cancer in your family and you're not experiencing any symptoms and you have no reason um, to think that there's anything wrong, it, it's quite um, effective and accurate. Now, even in my case that, you know, I had no history, no family history, no symptoms. Um, so yeah, I, I assume it would have shown something for me that would then have led to the colonoscopy. Right. But right. from what I understand, it's, um, you know, it's, it's really growing in popularity and especially for people who have no reason to think there's something wrong. Well, and, and uh, I've, I'm always thinking about compliance too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's effectiveness and there's compliance and um, getting bugged to do the thing at, at home and then send it back in. I could imagine that they have a pretty high compliance rate, whereas, uh, as you and I both know, colonoscopies are a big deal, actually. Right. They are. They, they are and who, who wants to do that? And right? who wants to do that? And you're thinking, oh, why should I do it? I'm, the, I'm healthy and right. so uh, just on that level, it logically seems like that's a pretty good protocol for a huge healthcare system. But I just wanted to know your opinion about it as someone who uh, out of the blue got diagnosed. Right. right. Uh, and I, I, I I would think that at-home tests like that, too, given uh, what has transpired during COVID and how healthcare has transitioned, you know, perhaps there's even a higher acceptance of that type of um, uh, test now. So it'll be interesting to see how how that develops. Yeah, I think I think we're going to learn a lot. You know, therapy has changed completely in this time. Mm hmm. Uh, in fact, I don't think I'm going to go back in my office. Honestly, you know, there are some advantages, actually, but there are also disadvantages. Um, for uh, a, a small example, uh, I had a little bit of a skin problem at the beginning of COVID, had a Zoom appointment, completely misdiagnosed. Hmm. Now, that wasn't a big deal, right? <laughs> it was itchy skin, but right. but it was done correctly immediately when I went in in person Emperor. later. Mm. So I think there is that danger for things that really benefit from a site visit, you know, uh, from a person being in the room with you. So how we're going to figure out which is what, because honestly, people do show up more probably when they don't have to go anywhere. Right. Uh, that's been true in therapy, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a little mysterious. We'll, we'll let that we'll see where roll that goes. out in the future. But would you say that that has been, you know, as someone who's had uh, cancer, has to do regular screening, all of that, 
What has the impact of COVID been on you and your health care? Um, I still went about my health care as I would have normally, but with precautions. So I do need to go in and do screenings in clinic every six months. And so, you know, of course, you have to wear masks, just being very, very careful um, as I was going about that. I had a number of people ask me, were, you know, are you concerned about your immune system during COVID? And um, I, given how I feel, Cheryl, I really was never concerned about it. I know chemo really broke down my body and my spirit when I was going through that. But I felt like having been a, you know, a year and a half or so removed before COVID came along, I felt like it gave my immune system enough time to redevelop. At least that's how I feel. Um, and I have no reason to, you know, think differently. At this point, I, you know, I'm not more apt to get sick or colds or, you know, anything like that. So I, I went about it pretty normally, but with caution. You know, that's an interesting point because your, your level of wellness couldn't prevent cancer, right? Cancer is indiscriminate like that. But I would imagine that you returned to health, that the the healthy, the healthiness you had before impacted your return to health. You know, that's really interesting, uh, because I am an advocate of that line of thinking. When I had um, both of my kids, I really tried to approach my pregnancies like, training and tried to get myself in even better shape as I was, you know, wanting to become pregnant during pregnancy with that same theory in mind, right? After I gave birth, hopefully I would return to um, uh, health faster. And so I actually had that same mindset as I was going through my surgery and subsequent chemo treatment. Before surgery, I kind of went into this uh, boot camp mentality where, and I didn't have a lot of time, about six weeks, but diet, exercise, everything. I was very, um, you know, religious about making sure I was doing everything I could to go into that surgery in the best condition possible. And I really do think that helped me bounce back quickly. I had the same mentality going into chemo, but chemo really kicked my butt. Um, Even though I, I wanted to try and eat well and exercise as I had, I got to a point, just a breaking point. I was physically depleted. You got to know when it's beyond what's in your control to do. That's part of the point I'm making, you know, that there are certain influences we have, but we don't have control. So let's, let's come back and talk about that more because that's such a very important message for people who are facing cancer um, that you didn't do something wrong if it's hard. (laughs) So let's, let's come back to that. Uh, You can go guess, uh, sorry, People out there, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com, the Good Grief host page, to find Kelly Scalota and her book. Go to awaybacktohealth.com. Back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. 
Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Kelly Scalota, the author of A Way Back to Health, 12 Lessons from a Cancer Survivor. And Kelly, during the break, we were just talking about, uh, unsurprisingly, um, you're uh, having action items for people because you're quite an action-oriented person, which is so helpful, especially for people who aren't particularly action-oriented, you know, to, to have someone lead the way on that. Um, I think many people even who are have a hard time doing it when they're diagnosed, right? So can you kind of enumerate what you think the most important actions to take might be if someone is trying to figure out what to do? Right, right. I One of the things I wanted to do throughout the book, Cheryl, was um, make sure that I ended kind of each chapter and each topic with specific action steps that were helpful for me or that came out of the interviews that I did so that to your point, they were really easy to digest, quick to do action steps for anyone who might want to do that. There were five or so that I would say that rose to the top. So I'll just quickly um, check through them. Number one, do your research. As we've discussed, uh, I'm a believer that knowledge is power. So the more research you do, the more the better prepared you'll be. We talked about getting a second opinion, and that's the number two. The doctor, your doctor, is one expert in the field of many, but there are so many others out there who could be helpful to you in your journey. Watch for miracles, um, especially when you're facing cancer. I think every part of your life can produce miracles, but you really do 
sometimes have to look for them and recognize them. Number four, prepare to speak up and know that if things don't seem right to you, then they aren't. So use your voice and speak up at any point. And finally, trust your instincts and take action. Cancer is a very personal journey. Only you know what's best for you. So really, you're the only person who can speak up for yourself. So those would be, I think, the top five. And there are many um, other things throughout the book that could help folks take action. And I think they would all help with what we were talking about um, before the break, which is um, being assured you did your part so that no matter what happens, uh, you're not going to turn on yourself. I've just seen that happen so much. And of course, that's an outgrowth of us, you know, believing in this particular culture that we're in charge and, you know, we can make it happen. And, you know, all of those things that are only, I, we do have some influence. I'm not ruling that out, but we do not have control. Um, and that, that can get very glaring and loud um, when people are diagnosed or face any huge challenge, honestly, don't you find? I do, I agree. Um, and I am someone who, who likes to be in control. So um, I think it's a combination of doing what feels right for you. In my case, you know, speaking up and finding my voice and doing what I could do to feel like I was getting some sort of control, at least of, you know, for myself. Um, so that I could better handle the uncertainty and the things that were outside of my control. Yeah, that's a matter of, you know, it's it's trite, but the serenity prayer has a lot to offer. Mm, yes, it does. <laughs> it know? does. And especially that third part, I'm sure everyone's heard it, you know, uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the the things I can, but I've always found the third part, the most important, the wisdom to know the difference. That's right. Um, so you're talking about that in a way that it empowered you to um, figure out what you did have influence over and do that. Yes. Yep. And, and let the rest be what it was, feel whatever you felt about it, but not feel you ought to be able to control it. Yeah. Right. Yep. So let's talk a little in this last few minutes we have with each other uh, about the other the other things that uh, for many people come out of challenge, and that's sort of the heart of this show. I'd love for you to to um, share that little part of your book uh, that has to do with um, appreciation, I guess. I yes, appreciation and uh, gratitude and. I, I've always been someone who I thought, I always thought I was grateful, but when you have cancer, the gratitude goes, my gratitude went to a whole new level. Um, so I'll read from um, that part of the book. It's actually in the trust, learn to trust your instincts chapter. During my cancer diagnosis and treatment, paying attention to and appreciating the little things in life, especially in nature, helped me. I stayed closer to home. I saw fresh beauty and wildflowers. I took long walks. I ate simple homegrown foods from local farms. I had a newfound sense of gratitude for all the things I'd normally taken for granted. The butterfly became a meaningful symbol to me because it symbolized transformation, 
change, hope, and life. But when I first picked the butterfly as my sign, I did so rather arbitrarily. I thought it was rather unusual to see a butterfly and that if I did see one, I'd know it was a true sign. I decided that as I encountered butterflies along this journey, it would be a reminder to trust my instincts. I prayed to God, I don't know why I'm on this path, but I'm in your hands. Show me a butterfly to let me know it's your path. So that sort of circles around, Kelly, to the idea of looking for miracles, doesn't it? It does. And and I did it all the time. (laughs) And of course, uh, what is it, the Einstein quote, you can live live life as if nothing is a miracle or as if everything is a miracle. So Uh, true. (laughs) I mean, when, when just tasting coffee in the morning, in a normal way is a it, that that became a miracle for me. Um, so many of the things that I just took for granted. In fact, to this day, Cheryl, I get up every morning, I come down, I make myself a cup of coffee. One of my cats lays on the floor beside me and I rub her belly. And I really, t- I take time to listen to a gratitude meditation and really taste coffee because when I was going through chemo, I couldn't drink it. It, it, it tasted terrible. It was some, it's like some, something, something was taken away from me. And so to this day, I still appreciate that very simple pleasure. I think a lot of people are going to be, uh, that's going to be one of the things people are experiencing as the world opens up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is, this is at the point people listen to the show way after it's, it's aired, but we're, kind of coming out of lockdown where I live uh, in a more dramatic way, less masking, you know, COVID things are really changing. And it's kind of like I've never been in the world before. (laughs) It's (laughs) true. Uh, It's, it's really, I was just uh, on vacation, as I mentioned to you, and um, just being on the beach and walking and uh, I don't know, I could do that during COVID, but I felt freer. Right. And that sense of of um, openness was was really remarkable. Uh, of course, there's another aspect of that, which is that I've heard a lot of people saying the world's too loud. You know, <laughs> so many people. <laughs> we have to also um, be gentle with ourselves about the way we come out of times like this. But uh, th- it, both are true, aren't they? It is true. I I was on vacation, took a spring break last week too. And I was in an airport and airplanes. And um, even though I traveled, I've traveled extensively throughout my entire career over the past two years, you know, have not. So getting back to doing that was such a, you know, on one hand, a pleasure. On the other hand, to your exact point, kind of being in tighter spaces with people and, you know, all of that, it's a shock to the system. (laughs) So I guess we have to get used to that. Yeah, and maybe not go back to quite as um, relentlessly busy uh, uh, sorts of lives. Um, You know, I've heard a lot of the younger people in my life saying, uh, there needs to be more space in my life, right? As they they have the option to do a bazillion things, they're not choosing to do as many of them. Uh, I'm sure that's different for each person and each age group, but... I I have noticed that a a bit. Well, I love that there is a freedom of 
thought about how you approach your work life now. When I um, had my children, I decided I would work part time, and it was you know it was kind of heresy that someone might either work part time or work a day work a day remotely, um, and I did it anyway. And um, now to think that people can have the freedom to you know do it their way, work remotely, uh, work more or less, whatever they want, and it's just so much more accepted. I I love that about you know, one of the things that have come out of the, the many bad things that have happened. Let's take, let's take whatever we can out of it. That's valuable, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it's been such a hard time in so many ways. And of course that's not entirely o- over at the moment either, but uh, I think the whole gist of this show is make something out of it if we have to go through these things, make something out of it. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing some signs about that of that already changes in healthcare, as I mentioned. Um, Now, you know, these things they said were too hard to do. They did in a matter of weeks because they had to like um, making remote visits, HIPAA compliant and, you know, (laughs) all kinds of uh, kinds of things that were sort of, um, I had a lot of friends advocating for, um, you know, remote hospice and stuff, but they couldn't get any traction. Now it's like, what's that's what everyone's doing. Right. Right. So um, that's a, that's a promising sign in the midst of what's been so difficult. Even someone who, um, you know, when I, when I was going through my cancer treatment, it would have been great not to have to be on the road as much or travel or be able to have the option to do more things through zoom. And I didn't have those options when I was going through cancer treatment. So I kind of picked myself up and went to meetings and traveled, um, but to know that even if someone has a compromised health situation and they can still, you know, do their work from home or do their, you know, do what they need to do and that there are tools there to do it and people are more accepting of it, I think is wonderful. I do. I do agree with that. Yeah. Um, just the travel involved in a medical appointment, even if you don't need need to be on that location, it used to exhaust my mother in particular. Mm-hmm. Um I, I always say she died of cancer. She didn't want to go to the city anymore. Oh, <laughs> you know? yeah. But I mean, of, of traffic, sorry. That's not of right. Cancer. No, <laughs> of it, traffic. It, it's not, it's not uncommon. <laughs> it's not uncommon. Kelly, I've really enjoyed our time together. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Cher. It was a pleasure. And you can find Kelly in her book uh, full of many more things than we had the time to discuss today at awaybacktohealth.com. Next week, I'll have Adam Hall. We'll be talking about his recent book, Divine Genius. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.